This week is brought to you by Board Game Bento. Head to BoardGameBento.com. Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to mention laser discs, high-def TV. You are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show. There's a great book called Art and Fear that talks about how there's one Mozart born every century, one genius who hears music and uh, puts the notes down on paper. And, and they say in that book, guess what? That's not you. So anybody who wants to make any kind of attempt to make something beautiful in this world, you have to be willing for it to come out messy and terrible and to go through a lot of rejection. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at the GBB Podcast, Facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast. How are you, Jamie? I'm doing excellent. How are you, Justin? I'm doing good. We always ask you how you're doing, and I assume you're it's because you're I'm polite. Hoping, I'm hoping you're one a very day, well-mannered Canadian. Yes. That's why. I'm hoping one day you're gonna be like, you know what? Um, I had this thing at work and <laughs> I, don't, I don't air my dirty laundry yeah. in the podcast. That's for elsewhere. So this week, um, you might have heard at the top of the show that is brought to you by BoardGameBento.com. And this is another fantastic sponsor of the Geek Dad and our podcast. And yeah. and it's a cool, like, there's a whole bunch of different um, boxes, if you will, like geek boxes, subscription ones. And I got to say, this is probably one of the most original I've seen. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to pack a bunch of board games into a mystery box every month. Right. You know, we, we we talked about this is from the same people who did Comic Bento, which we talked about a few weeks back, um, and they have another um, another business, Board Game Bento, and it's it's just like you said, it's a monthly subscription box. Uh, each box is themed to a different kind of games. So recent themes have been you know party games or games based around food with a food theme or there was a investigation. So there was some, the, the games all had something to do with mysteries and investigating. Mm-hmm. Um, and they guarantee you at least $80 worth of stuff inside and at least three games. So um, that's a pretty good value. The box, I'm going to be honest, the box is toward the more expensive end of your subscription box, box range. Uh, if you're just going to do a one month plan, it's $50 plus shipping and handling. But you do get uh, your value worth, values worth out of that. You know, like I said, they guarantee you three games and at least $80 worth. Um, and sometimes they'll throw in some other accessories like dice or, you know, little mm-hmm. dice bag, things like that, meeples. Um, and, but it's, you know, it, like any mystery box that you don't know what's coming, you always run the risk of having something that's in the box. Um, but looking at their past few months of what they've included – um, they do try to get some of the more obscure, not, I don't want to use the word obscure, maybe lesser known games, games that maybe you didn't pick up, but are still, they look really fun. Um, and you know, I, I, the way I look at this is this is a great gift. Like it would be a great mm-hmm. gift to some, if you've got somebody who really likes tabletop or board games or there's a birthday coming up or a Christmas or something, you don't know what to get them. Who doesn't love a mystery box? Really? Like no, who doesn't really, love yeah. getting mail? Like what's in this box? And you tear it open to find what it is. And and really, like a, a box of board games is 
a box of board games that are that's a mystery that's pretty awesome <laughs> you can't beat mystery and you can't really <laughs> and something i love about this is they give you a theme for yeah. for what the month is going to be and you're in luck because this month's theme is party Party! How cool is that? <laughs> Party! So there's two different plans. One is a one-month plan you can sign up for, and that just recur that recurs and charges you once a month, and it's fifty dollars for that one. Or you can sign up for the six-month plan, and you'll get a little bit of a discount for forty-five dollars per month, and they charge you a one-time charge of two seventy plus shipping and handling for that. Um, but if you think you're going to be on board with it for that long, do it. But if you just want to try it out, do the one-month plan. Yeah, what's nice about that is that even though it will automatically resubscribe you at the end of every month, uh, you can cancel any time. Mm-hmm. So if you want to just sign up for one month just to try it out or if you like a theme that they've announced, try it out um, and you can cancel at any point. You know, it's not a it's not a commitment. It's, it is a one right. month plan. It just rolls over. Right. Um, and if you uh, as, a, as a special thank you to Geek Dad readers and um, great big beautiful podcast listeners, if you decide that you, this is something you want to check out, go online. Use the promo code GeekDad and you'll get a nice little discount. This week on the podcast, Jamie goes solo again. Yeah, man. What's what's up with that? I don't know. I'm unreliable, if anything. Yeah. So, what? Um, what? What can we well, do? But, but you're but you're lovable. Exactly. So when you're here, we love you. <laughs> exactly. It makes up for it. <laughs> so this week, Jamie, why don't you tell us who you spoke to? And I talked to the amazing Kate DiCamillo. Um, she. You'll hear it in the interview. She is just delightful. She's um, completely grounded and completely amazing, and which is astonishing for somebody who has seen such success in her career. So if you if you know who Kate DiCamillo is, she doesn't really need much of an introduction. But if you don't know who she is, you probably know some of the books that she's written. She wrote The Tale of Despero. Um, she wrote her new book is Ramey Nightingale. She wrote Because of Win Dixie. Um, she wrote Flora and Ulysses. She's done the Mercy Watson series of of, of uh, children's picture books. Well, they're not picture books; they're chapter books. Um, she's just phenomenal. Every one of her books is just gorgeous, and it, she has she's one of six people, believe it or not. She's one of six people who has won the Newbery Award twice. And when you take into account that she's really only written, I think, seven books that are considered novels and that would have, you know, or that would have been eligible that she's won twice with those books is astonishing. Um, but you know, something that's, we, we talk about this, I talk about this with her, that it looks like she had this instant success, but Mm -hmm. there was a long road for her to get to where she was. Um, you know, as long, you know, her first book was, uh, the tale of Despero. Um, and there was a long road just to get to that point. Um, but she, she was, Last year, it's a two-year stint, so I think it was 2014 to 15, she was the national ambassador for young people's literature. Uh, she is now the national summer reading champion. So she is a very you know, outspoken, vocal, you know, um, present force to be reckoned with for children's literacy. And uh, you know, she backs it up with the work. With the, with the work. And uh, she's always out there, you know, talking about literacy in children's books and, and how important it is for kids to read. So uh, she's just an amazing person. And every one of her books is a pure delight. So, if again, if you know who she is, you didn't need me to say any of that. But if you don't know who she is, get to the bookstore, go to the library, you know, pick up some of her books and just start reading and you will not be disappointed. 
All right, so without further ado, we're going to play that interview for you right now. Enjoy. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Well, um, thank you for chatting with me. Absolutely. Um, I guess I want to start off with the um, some of the awards and titles that you've had, since there have been so many. Um, you were recently, you're coming off a two-year stint as the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. You're now the National Summer Reading Champion. Um, I guess I have to ask, do you enjoy being such a public advocate for literacy? <laughs> well, uh, it's funny because you're saying all that. I'm listening and going, wow, yeah, I guess that's true. That's true. But it's all I feel is like I'm somebody who just, I love to read. Um, and I've, I was always, I was the kind of kid who buttonholed other kids and said, here, read this book. So it's just, um, it's a continuation of who I've always been, I guess. Yeah. And, and it's also a way to, um, thank my mother who put so many books in my hands, bought me books, took me to the library, read to me. So I do it uh, for her too. Yeah. So I guess quickly, what is involved with your current role as the summer reading champion? In a, in a way, it's kind of um, the same way I approach the uh, national ambassador for young people's literature. This, I see my role as, being the person who reminds people about something they already know. Mm-hmm. So um, with uh, National Ambassador, it was like, I, look, this is, I know you know this, but I want to tell you stories connect us. Um, and with uh, the libraries, it's just like, like if I'm in a room full of people, I say, how many of y'all know where your public library is? How many of you know that your public library has a summer reading program. How many of you know that it's free, that you can read anything that you want to read? And so their hands go up. They know I want to remind them, and I want to remind them, particularly the kids, that nobody's going to be telling you what to do. This is your, your time to read for yourself, you know? Yeah. Um, we recently had LeVar Burton on the show, who is also another very vocal advocate for childhood literacy. Um, and he's very enthusiastic about the new direction that he's taking Reading Rainbow, which is into the digital sphere. Um, and with the abundance of, of so many digital offerings and more kids reading on tablets nowadays, how can we get more kids and families into the libraries? Well, you know, part of this is, um, I think everybody's seeing it as uh, a refuge, uh, the actual physical building, right? A refuge and also a place of freedom. So um, to get that message into kids' heads, but also into parents, like it's, it, this is, you know, take them there, let them explore there. And, um, and that's part of this program too, is to remind people of that, you know, but part of it has to do with, you know, the actual physical building. Go there, and that also makes you part of a community. Yeah. Um, your books are routinely, as I said already, routinely awarded the highest honors. You're actually only one of six people, I believe, to have won the Newbery twice. Um, I'm just curious, how have those awards and accolades, how have they affected your career or, I guess, changed the way that you approach your work? Or have they at all? 
Yeah, it's so intimidating when you say that. It's the same as saying, uh, <laughs> it's just, uh, how? Well, you know, it's funny because when you sit in the beginning and you write and you think about um, putting the story out into the world and how many different ways it's going to be rejected, which is what happens. Um, and so that's always on your shoulder. Um, and then I, I can, I still can't believe those two Newberries. And I'll tell you, this is the, I have a physical example for that. So I'm sitting at my desk and I have those Newberries in a drawer because there are actual metals that come with it. And they are all the way at the back of the drawer. And sometimes like once every four or five months. I will slowly open the door and look to see if they're still there. But they're and not even I in a place it. of honor. <laughs> well, they're they are they are in the highest place of honor in my heart, but they're in that drawer because I can't think about it or else it would Yeah. You know what I mean? It would mess with yeah. me. So it's like they're and I'm very tentative when I look for them. I'm afraid that they're not going to be there. Just like <laughs> with both of them, I was afraid that they were going to call and tell me that they've made a mistake, you know, and that they weren't, you know, that, that I wasn't. So it's just, it's, it's there. And, but it's like something that I don't let myself look at or think about. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that sort of leads into what I wanted to ask. Obviously when you win an award, any award, um, it, it it sort of heightens the expectations for what you've got coming next. Do you find that those increased expectations um, affected you more, like your your expectations for yourself, or among readers and critics and everybody else? <laughs> this is like a therapy session. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's good. I don't, you know, it's, it all goes into – this is what I think when I'm writing. I think, um, I think let me do what the story wants. And if I ask what, does, what do I want, uh, it, it's, it's more like I write trying to get out of my own way. And my own way is uh, those expectations, my ego for, you know, hoping that people will want to read it, hoping that people will like that. All of that I have to kind of like shove aside. It's like being a horse um, with blinders on. Um, And uh, what I have to do is disregard all of that expectations on me and expectations on the book and just think this is my job is to tell this story as true and well as I can. So that's what I do. You won a Newbery honor with your very first book. Um, And on first glance for somebody who might not know any better, your career looks like it has the blush of instant unparalleled success. Like you just broke out of the (laughs) gate and won all these awards and became a critical darling um, but that's never the case. So how long was that road of rejections until you found that success? Oh, that's a really uh, long answer, but I'll try to condense it. So um, I'll start with college, even though that doesn't sound like I'm condensing it. So <laughs> I was always a, a kid who loved to read. I, I, and when it t- is time to go to college, I major in English because I think, well, then I can just read all the time, Right. And so I had a professor my senior year of college who said to me, um, you have a certain facility with words. You should consider graduate school. That's a direct quote. And um, because I was 21 years old, 
I thought he was speaking to me in code. And that what he was really trying to tell me is that I was the next Flannery O'Connor, right? <laughs> so I thought, why should I go to graduate school if I'm so talented? And I'll just go off and be a writer. So, uh, and this is what I tell kids when I talk to them, too. Not that Flannery O'Connor necessarily resonates with them, but, I, you know, it's just, <laughs> look, look, I thought he was trying to tell me that I was really talented. That's not what he said at all. But I, what I did was I got the idea into my head that I was going to be a writer. I didn't go to graduate school. Instead, I got a black turtleneck, and I wore it all the time. <laughs> and that, that was from the time I was 21 until I was almost 30. I went around posturing. Uh, I read a lot, but I didn't write anything. And, um, uh, and then right before I turned 30, it was just old enough to let me know that I could go on the rest of my life this way. And so I started to write when I was 30, and um, I, I started with writing short stories, um, and I got something like 470-some rejection letters over a six-year period, uh-huh. and, then, um, and then came Winn-Dixie. So, yeah, it was not an overnight. Yeah, it, was, it never is. But it, no, no, it isn't. And and it's so funny because it's not just kids that think that if you're supposed to do something, it's easy and, and it comes out of you uh, right the first time and that the world recognizes it. Adults think that, too, because, you know, you sit down to write and uh, it's a mess. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, there's that, there's a great book called Art and Fear that talks about how there's one Mozart born every century, one genius who hears the music and uh, puts the notes down on paper. And, and they say in that book, guess what? That's not you. So anybody who wants to make any kind of attempt to make something beautiful in this world, you have to be willing for it to come out messy and terrible and to go through a lot of rejection. So what kept you going, though? I mean, through all those 460-some rejections, what, what, what kept you going? I don't, I you know, I, get, I don't know. You know, it's a question that the kids will ask, and, and I don't, I, the best answer I can come up with is, because people will say sometimes, Aren't, don't you hate yourself for that nine years where you did nothing? <laughs> and I never, I don't, because those nine years, I think that time of, of not doing anything um, is what made me decide, I think, that I wasn't going to give up because I, I thought I can't, I can't make myself talented. I can't make myself get published, but I can. I am in control of whether or not I can do the work, yeah. and I'm in control of whether or not I can put the work out in the world. I can keep on trying. And so I thought those are the, that's, that's what I, I can do, that's the, and so I'm going to keep on doing that. So I don't have to hate myself for not doing it, which is what I spent, you know, those nine years doing. Yeah. I I wonder if that's what really makes, I mean, we're talking about writing. So like, I wonder if that's what really makes a writer, not, not an ability to write or not, not an ability to to publish, but that ability to just persevere, to, to not give into the frustration and just keep going in the face of all that rejection. I think so. I've been in writing groups where I could, it was so clear that the person to the left or the right of me had more talent than I did, but it, it, are they going to persist? And that means within themselves and like, you know, doing multiple drafts, but also persist when you have to rewrite for, um, 
an editor and are you going to keep on sending it out when you get rejections? And those things are just, um, you know, I can't control anything except whether or not I, I do the work and put the work out there. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think I would, I think I would buy that, you know, who said it? Talent is cheap. Yeah. Um, and I think there are a ton of talented people in the world. Um, but, you know, I'm willing to slog along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and as you were slogging along, I understand that you did a lot of different jobs. And I read that you actually worked at Disney World before before you, you made it with the writing thing. Um, we're big fans of Disney here, so I have to ask what it was that you did there. <laughs> I'm happy to tell you what I did there. <laughs> First, I want you to I want you to see me um, uh, in my well. Okay, so Epcot Center, which you know, right? Yes. Um, Spaceship Earth, the geodesic dome. Love it. Um, uh, I am dressed in a powder blue polyester spacesuit. I think I can see yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, you know, I was technically the term is operation. So um, I that meant I loaded people onto that ride, uh, and I told them to watch their steps. So how many people in your party, please? How many people in your party, please? One up front, two in the back, two up front, two in the back. Look down and watch your step, please. How many in your party? How many in your party? So. And all these years later, you still have it ingrained in your memory. <laughs> if I am standing still and a, a mass of people is walking past me, it's very hard for me not to say to look down and watch. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to ask you where your ideas come from because everybody gets asked that and there is no answer, but I need to ask if you know where your character names come from, because I think, yeah, it's actually a a much uh, more refined question. And the answer is going to be just as uh, satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) nebulous. Yeah. I don't, you know, I I will say this is the only part of writing that's easy for me. Really? Um, and they they literally pop into my head. I've learned to always have a notebook with me to make sure that I capture them when they show up. I I do offer up sometimes that I think that maybe part of it is growing up in the South um, and being, um, you know, immersed in a strange name uh, culture. There were a lot of unusual names uh, around me when I was growing up. And it was also further distorted by um, all the amusement parks, you know, that were there. This is even before Disney. So there's Gatorland and Weeki Wachi and um, Circus World and all those things. I think they just kind of, uh, in combination with the Southern part of it, just kind of like my brain was very receptive to that, that, you know. Yeah. And they just rise. It's the only part that I don't have to think about. That's amazing. I mean, the names in almost every one of your books—they're just extraordinary, and it's—they're—they're what stand out immediately to the reader. And it's just they standing up on their own is just a name. They—they already evoke so much about the character, and it's—it's just wonderful. And it's amazing to me that you say that that it comes easy to you because those names would seem like they, they, they were the result of hours of laborious thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, and then people, you know, you say you say the names already, um, like, convey so much before you even know the character, but that's the way it is for me, too, because the question, you know, how do you build characters? How do you develop characters? Again, I'm, 
I can't, I can't say, I don't know, but so much of it comes from uh, having the character name. Yeah. And once I have the character name, then like, and particularly with um, Rainy uh, Nightingale, the most recent book, I have these character names. And then what I do is like, again, that thing of getting out of my own way. And I listen to them talk to each other. And that's how I find out who they are. But it all starts with the name. So the name comes first. Yeah. Huh. What's your writing re- uh, regimen? Like, do you have a daily routine? Oh, I, I'm, I, I'm dangerously close to being a very rigid person, as my friends will tell you. So um, it doesn't happen without coffee. Um, <laughs> Nothing does. The, co- <laughs> the coffee maker is uh, set to go off automatically at 5.30. So what I do is I come downstairs, pour a cup of coffee, uh, and come in and do uh, the writing before anything else, before... I can talk myself out of it mm-hmm. before I talk to anybody else when I still kind of have one foot in the dream world mm-hmm. a little bit. So I, I do it first and before anything else. Two pages. That's that's it. That's it. Just two pages every day. Two pages when it's in the, the, the first draft. And then, you know, as I move through more drafts, I'll, I'll add a couple, you know, mm-hmm. I'll do uh, two pages uh, four times a day, maybe, but wow. initially just two. Wow. I admire that. I admire, well, I admire anybody who can wake up at five thirty every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's nothing admirable about it and there's certainly nothing pretty about it. Um, and, and, and it's just what I found. Um, there's, you know, that, that voice in your head that, that I think most of us has that, have that says, you know, you don't know what you're doing and you can't do this and all of that. I have found that that voice generally wakes up at nine o'clock. And so I'm done with it. The important stuff by the time that voice shows up to tell me what a loser I am. So yeah, that's another reason to get up and do it early. Um, You're... You mentioned Rami Nightingale, but you've got a lot of other things going on at the moment. And one of those is the Tales from Dekabu Drive series, um, in which, if anybody doesn't know, you're exploring the world of Mercy Watson and the, the ancillary characters a little bit. We love them. Yeah. My, my daughter is a huge fan oh, of good. Mercy Watson and the new books. Um, but I have to ask, might we be, see something similar with characters from Despero in a similar format, like sort of like spin-off books. Huh. Interesting. Characters from Despero. So not you know, I had relatively threatening letters um about how I need to write a sequel to Despero. <laughs> not but everything needs a sequel. Yeah, right. No, but I haven't had it phrased that way about Despero. Well one time like maybe four years ago, I got a kid who said, okay, you're not going to do a sequel. This was for Edward Tulane. But what about there's a character in there named Bryce? Shouldn't he have his own novel? And my ears pricked up about that. And my ears are pricking up about, okay, <laughs> characters from Despero. Yeah. I would not, you know, that is not on the horizon for me, but I've learned a couple things. One, uh, anything is possible to wit me sitting here talking about my book. And two, um, that interests me. So 
I would not, yeah. Okay. Well, that one's yours. You can take that, you know, free charge. <laughs> we, we'll be picking up the first copies if you make that happen, because we that, that would be something that would be truly awesome. <laughs> oh, that's very, very fun. No one has ever said that that way for that book. So I'll only take a small there. percentage. It's fine. Really? <laughs> okay. All right. I'll, I'll write you. I'll write you a small monthly check, Excellent. a stipend, if you will. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, with that in mind, I mean, you've got Rami Nightingale. You've got the the Dekawu Drive books. Um, your books really do cover a spectrum of styles. Um, you know, with with you've done picture books, you've done novels, you've done chapter books. Is that by design? Does that help keep the process fresh for you? No, it's not by design because I'm just not clever enough to do anything by the, by design. But it's but the process being fresh is an interesting. You know, I can see that. You know, um, it, it is it's a really nice way to keep working um, to have something shorter. And um, you know, the the Mercy Watson always feels like a sorbet. Uh, in between yeah. courses of a heavy banner. So it's so nice to have something shorter to go back to as I'm working on a novel because, you know, I'll, I'll do a draft of a novel and then I need to let it sit for a bit. And so for that two weeks or so or three weeks while it's marinating, it's nice to have something uh, short and less uh, unwieldy to, to work on. So it's not by design, but I have found it to be deeply satisfying to go light, dark, uh, funny, shorter, yeah. um, not quite as funny, darker, you know? Yeah. Um, you mentioned that, you know, I guess the, wh- why you write is sort of to make sense of the world, um, to put it in one brief sentence, but if you weren't a writer, what do you think that you would be doing? I, if I weren't a writer, I would, uh, be somebody who was wanting to be (laughs) (laughs) because it is, I feel um, so fortunate in this respect that um, I found what I'm supposed to do and I get to do it. And then not only do I get the chance to do it, but um, uh, the world uh, pays attention and reads it. It's just like, I can't, I can't think of any, I, I do feel like I have found what I'm supposed to be doing. And it is a miracle to me that people um, uh, have responded to the stories and, uh, and let me keep on doing this. That's amazing. Not everybody gets to say that. No, I know. I know. It's, it's like I'm kind of making myself teary because it's just like the chances of it are so astronomically slim. But it's also this thing of, um, you know, finding what you want to do, you know, the avocation and vocation and, and mine happily meld, but it, an avocation, um, can serve your, I mean, even if, so if I was doing something else, I would probably be working in a bookstore, but I would still be writing yeah. because it, 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 it's so necessary for me. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've met thousands of young readers during your career, uh, including many who probably come up to you and tell you that they want to be writers themselves. What advice do you give them? Same thing for adults and for kids, because if I can get a room full of people that are really being honest with me and I ask who wants to be a writer, 
I get a lot of adult hands going up too. Yeah. So and 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 so it's always the same thing, which is you have to read. And anybody who isn't happy to get that assignment, you probably really don't want to be a writer. So read as much as you can, and um, find some way to make a deal with yourself about how you're going to do the work. Uh, you know, for me, it's it's those two pages, but it's a it is a personal journey, and so you have to. It's not what works for everybody. For some people, I have friends who write who will write for six months and then not write for another six months. So that's figure out how you're going to do the work and then um, keep your eyes and your ears and your heart. That one's difficult. I think Mm -hmm. Um, open um, look, look and listen, you know, and, and, and keep a notebook with you and and write it all down. Um, And, you know, uh, there's that wonderful quote from E.B. White, all, all I'm, all I've ever tried to say, all I want to say in, in my writing is that I love the world, and he, he did that. Um, and that that's so apparent in everything that he wrote, and I think that that's part of what it means to write, is, is to look at the world and, and to love it. Okay, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Fantastic interview, Jamie. You do you do okay without me? You do good. Hey, thanks, you man. Ca- you carry thanks. the show anyway. So <laughs> I, I appreciate. It. Oh, I don't know about that. I'll go there. I'll go there. <laughs> so yeah, no, this was fun. It was a fun one to talk to. I mean, she, she, I'm a big fan of hers, and right. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's always nice to talk to people who you know really well just from what they've produced. Um, and it was, and it's especially nice when they're just so pleasant and right, happy. Exactly. And, and just a nice person. <laughs> well, and I think a general rule of thumb when it comes to guests we have on the show, if it's not something that we'd be interested in personally, we, we just kind of take a pass on it <laughs> realistically. Yeah. We because if we're not interested in it personally or the person or the work, we got, it, it's too hard to come up with questions. It's too right. hard to carry a conversation. So, and I know you guys are wondering, and the answer is yes, we have turned down people before. Oh, sad. Anyway, we have, a, we have a very high bar. Yes, we, <laughs> we do. <laughs> you have to do something pretty, pretty awful for us to uh, say no. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Um, thanks for hitting subscribe. Thank you for downloading week after week. Thank you. And you can find us on Twitter at the GB Pug. Find us on Twitter at the GBB Podcast. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast. And I'm Justin at 140 Justin C. And I'm Jamie at the Roarbots. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geek dad. 